Hello and welcome to the SAPRO podcast. I am Andrew Gillis. I am Vice President of Research and Development, Intellectual Property, and Marketing at SAPRO. Today in the podcast, it's a great one. I am talking to Professor John Steen from the University of British Columbia. He's the director of the Bradshaw Research Initiative in Mining and Minerals. He is also the senior editor of the Project Management Journal and a EY Distinguished Scholar in Metals Futures. Uh, He spends a lot of time thinking about the future of the mining industry, the future of resource industries. Uh, And we have actually a really interesting podcast today. Um, We cover a lot of ground. Uh, We start at John's beginning, talking about his time growing up in Tasmania, uh, his education um, in Tasmania and Queensland, his two PhDs, how he ended up at the University of British Columbia. We talk through his particular specialty, which is the management of innovation, finding solutions in complex organizations. We also go into detail in some of his academic studies, um, looking at outcomes, research interests, cultural aspects of problem solving, relationships between big resource companies, supply chains, risk allocation. Um, And we get into the detailed work that John is doing at UBC, looking at energy infrastructure, water, sustainability in the mining industry, um, and how he's trying to bridge the gap between academic experts in different areas around the mining industry to bring innovative solutions. So I hope you enjoy it. So, hi, John. Uh, Thanks for joining me on the SEPRO podcast today. I'm really excited to have you as a guest. I think this ought to be um, interesting to a lot of people because I, you know, my uh, familiarity with the stuff you're doing is that it um, has a potential to have a big impact on the mining industry as a whole, you know, from a, from a, say, a macro industry standpoint. Um, So I'm, I'm really excited to have you here today. Thanks, Andrew, and it's a real pleasure to be here. I think um, as we uh, spend a lot of time in this post-COVID world or the the current COVID world, we're realising that uh, uh, digital media like podcasts and webinars are going to be big now and and bigger going forward. So really happy to be uh, talking with you on this medium. Yeah, good way to get the messages out. Um, So I always like to you know, start right from the start, whether I'm, you know, talking to people on a podcast platform or just, um, you know, uh, meeting somebody for the first time and get an idea of their background. So can, do you mind talking a little bit about, um, you know, where you grew up and where you're originally from? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I actually was born in Tasmania, uh, which I guess is the Newfoundland of Australia. Um, <laughs> and indeed, all the, all the jokes are the same. So um, when, I, when I meet with Newfoundlanders, we can share the, share the persecution that we suffer from our, uh, with one from our big island cousins. Um, yeah, so, so I, I, I grew up there. Um, my, um, on my parents' side, my, my, they were um, immigrants from uh, Holland after, after the war. And, uh, yeah, it's a fairly interesting place to grow up. Very, very remote, but uh, just a fascinating uh, nature and geology. It's quite, quite, quite a unique place. So um, as, as a boy, I was very interested in, um, in, in, in science. But uh, whenever a relative visited, I, they couldn't leave Hobart without uh, taking me to the museum. And my favourite part in the museum was the uh, geology section. And it was just fascinating. Uh, And that was about five or six. And I remember probably for about my seventh birthday, you know, other kids were getting bicycles and things like that. Um, I got a geology pick and I was so happy. (laughs) So I I collected, you know, all these these rocks and I just had an obsession with with geology and mining. So it's it's one of these things that you, um, some people, I guess, move into mining. Um, For me, it was somewhere in my DNA, you know, maybe a previous life, I don't know, but uh, it was a point of fascination. Um, now, I recall you telling me that, um, you know, the, the community, did, <laughs> not sure if maybe there's something to discuss in mixed company, but the, uh, you know, the area you grew up in wasn't super academically oriented. So it was a bit, um, you know, a bit unusual for someone to pursue, um, you know, really significant higher education. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's one way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I, I can... 
I can remember, uh, you know, growing up, you know, there was, it was, it was, you know, uh, Tasmania doesn't have a lot of industry, but there was a couple of really big companies. There was the Pasminko um, electrolytic zinc smelter. Um, you know, that, that was a, that was a big employer uh, and not far from where I lived and I could hear it at uh, nighttime was the, the Cadbury chocolate factory. Oh, so okay. a lot of the workers would work shift work in the in the in the factory, and um, I'd hear the siren go at six six p.m. for the end of the shift. Mm. So you know, it was, it was a very um, sort of industrial backdrop, and um, you know, the, the the kids I went to school with, um, I think, oh, maybe one other went to university out of out of a class, you know, two classes of sixty kids. Wow. Yeah, so 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 um, yeah, not 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 an academic environment, you might say, but um, yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, 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 I guess, I guess you know, people who come out of these places, they they're um, they're very hungry and entrepreneurial. Uh, they, they don't right. take things for granted, and and I think that's sort of shaped me as a uh, as an academic and an entrepreneur. Um, you know, you're always you're always hungry for the next thing because that's how you got out. I guess. Oh, that's interesting. That's a really interesting perspective because I mean, it's, uh, you know, probably an academic stereotype uh, or a stereotype of academics that, you know, they can be a bit more, uh, you know, laid back and just sort of take things as they come as opposed to, you know, getting out there and being a bit more aggressive with, um, you know, opportunities, academic or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I suppose, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like Forrest Gump, you know, I, I, I sort of ran to get out of that environment and I'm still running, you know, no, no, one's, no one's told me to stop yet. So uh, I have a feeling you may be able to select a more appropriate analogy, but uh, that's, that's yeah, yeah, I, I think I was just talking to some folks this morning from uh, Anglo-American in South Africa and, um, you know, uh, one of them uh, was a... a a female engineering graduate of, of Indian descent who grew up under apartheid, oh, wow. and she, and she's a dynamo. And you can see, you know, I I, I know why you're still running hard. Uh, you know, I, right. I, I I get it. You know, it's um, sort of it's a lot of people don't get out of those environments, but when when they do, they're you know they're 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 hungry. Uh, they they run hard. So right. like, when I meet someone like that, I I. I you know, sort of smile and say, yep, I, I know it drives you. <laughs> right. So then you ended up, um, where did you end up doing your undergrad and in what uh, discipline? Yeah, yeah. So so I, I, I went to the University of Tasmania, um, which is an easy choice because there's only one <laughs> university. Uh, you know, um, yeah, I, 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 I like to joke with people, you know, it's um, if you have a pulse rate, you get an offer uh, to, to, to go. Um and um, you know, I was I, I wasn't a very good student. Um, I, I didn't I didn't fit in very well at school. Uh, and uh, I remember having been counselled by my uh, by a teacher in grade ten who said, "Look, you know, the the, ac- the 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 school thing isn't really working out, is it, John?" So, you know, perhaps you should think about carpentry, uh, which is which is <laughs> hilarious because I, 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 I struggle to install a cat flap, you know, let, let alone anything else that's more manual. So. Um, so you know, I, 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 but fortunately, I got into um, into university, and you know, as, as 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 that world sort of opened up, I became more engaged in the, I guess, in the problem solving and the and the and the bigger ideas that you're exposed to over time. And uh, well, if you were I, struggling, if you were struggling with it, why did you, why was university just sort of the, uh, you know, the the best out of a few different uh, paths that you. Other yeah. ones you really didn't feel like following, you know, the lesser of several <laughs> evils, or was it, you know, did you, despite the, you know, your your teacher's advice, you didn't exactly agree with it? Well, again, um, and you know, I really really empathise with the people who are graduating into this current economic environment because it does set you on a path that you, you know, is is challenging. So, when I graduated from my degree in 1991, uh, that was a, a recession and. Tasmania being what it is, um, you know, sort of fall you know, in, in all the Australian economies, it falls into recession first, and it emerges from recession last. So, yeah. and there were no there were there were, there were no jobs. Um, there was a PhD scholarship that offered uh, the princely sum of two hundred and seventy dollars a week, which was more than anything else that was on offer. <laughs> and um, and and I took I took that, you know, not 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 for any particular strategic reason. You know, it was it. it 
yeah, I'd like to say I had a had a vision of being a, a world leading scientist, but the, the reality is it just seemed like a good idea at the time. Right. So, do you, did your undergrad was in uh, in general sciences? Is that right? Yeah, biochemistry, biochemistry. Okay. But but during that that during that PhD, I, I became um, sort of really interested in the management of research and development because we because we had a um, well, my department, my biochemistry department had a a research contract with a major pharmaceutical company and. It went really, really badly, and you know, from oh. the sidelines, uh, as a as a PhD student, it was really interesting to watch that. And I was saying, well, actually, I'm probably more interested in the management of technology uh, more so than the the you know actually doing the lab lab work, the bench work. I, I, you know, I wasn't a very good uh, bench scientist. I, I don't think I have the attention span for for doing bench science. Um, but as, as you know, but I got really interested in, in um, the management of R and D. So what I would do after that is I'd uh, sneak across to the to the um, commerce faculty and, and sit in on on lectures around management and economics. Mm. Um, until one day I was caught by my my supervisor who. Um, gave you a very stern dressing down and said, look, there's no future in that. You've got to make a choice. I'm not going to tolerate you going and, and wasting your time on these management people. Really? Um, yeah, 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 really? yeah. Oh, this is the 1990s, right? You know, so the, the the silos that we talk about now in universities are, were much, much worse then, you know. And, oh, interesting. Uh, you know, if, if you either pursued the pure science and, and aim for a pure research career or, or you got out, you know, don't, don't mess around with business. So that, 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 but that was the environment. Um, so um, I did start to take, you know, start to do more around that um, area of, uh, of, of managing research and development. And uh, fortunately, one of the uh, professors in commerce said, look, we've got this project looking at the titanium dioxide industry and how innovation happened in that. And um, we don't understand the chemistry. So do you think you could, uh, Write up the case study for us, and and I and I did, and that was my first paper in uh, in mining innovation, and that really set me off on a trajectory, um, and, you know, and another PhD, which is another story, but um, looking at the research and development and industrial economics of um, of the resources sector. So, okay, fast forward to uh, 20, uh, 2003, I, I moved to the University of Queensland to the University of Queensland Business School. Yeah. And to 2016, I think it was, um, I became head of the Department of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at the UQ Business School. And then um, I moved, uh, well, I did a sabbatical at uh, the University of British Columbia in 2017. And I thought, this is probably the best place in the world to live. Um, <laughs> and it's got a really active mining sector. And it's it's got all the things I like in terms of skiing and fly fishing. So um it took me two years to work out how to move here, but thanks to uh, support from my long-term collaborative colleagues at Ernst & Young, um, I, I now have a, a five-year research chair, and this year I became the director of the Bradshaw Research Initiative in Mining and Minerals. So um, it's it's a long way from Tasmania, and it's a long time, a long way from a, a, a maths teacher telling me that university probably wasn't an option. He may still be right, of course. I haven't discounted that. <laughs> Time will tell, I suppose. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but in many ways, I'm still the still the 16-year-old kid trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Aren't we all? Uh, well, maybe just pulling a couple threads along the way there. What were, um, when you went to the University of Queensland, um, you know, because I think it was going to be interesting to a lot of the listeners here, what were some of the areas of focus on the, um, you know, resource and, and business side there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, often research ideas come up through casual conversations. Now universities have a, have a habit of trying to formalize things into MOUs or, you know, um, one person has the official responsibility for managing partnerships and all, all that. Um, my experience is that uh, the best research projects, you know, with industry come through conversations. So I think I was giving a, a, a talk to a, uh, an MBA group. And um, as you know, you know, a lot of, lot of uh, people in the resources sectors do MBAs. And yeah. I was talking about problem solving and the problems of being in large organizations and, and finding solutions. And someone came up to me and said, oh, that's fascinating. 
could you come and talk to my manager at Rio Tinto because he's working on that problem? And that really mm. started our first research project in 2005 or six, I think it was, uh, looking at um, how do you know how do solutions get found in complex complex organisations which have thousands of people over the world, um, and then from there, you know that that sort of spun off into thinking about the management of innovation. What were your then, What were your findings in that study? Well, um, <laughs> it initially it's it's one of these things with uh, these exploratory projects, and really I've got to give credit to the um, the folks who were man who had the vision to really open the organisation up to us at the time. Um, and you know, we're, I'm still in contact with them. They're, 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 they're really great people. But the findings was that, um, well, initially we thought, oh, that's easy. So if you have a, a network um, of people and you know people, it's like a phone directory. You know, you, you contact um, really well-connected people and they give you the answer. And that was like the hypothesis. So we saw this as like a, a network problem, you know, the, the if you like this, the, the six degrees of separation problem, you know, okay. how, how well networked is your organization. But what we found was that, and I remember the trigger for this, we're, we're out in the middle of Queensland, you know, on a, on, a, on a mine site. And, you know, we asked someone, okay, so you solved that problem with the drag line. How did you do that? And I was expecting, oh, well, you know, we, we contacted the expert inside, inside Rio Tinto. And, um, you know, and they put us in contact with someone else. You know, I was expecting something nice and clean. What the story was, and, you know, I can say this because it was a long time ago, um, is that they said, well, actually, um, we went, I, I, I went to someone down in New South Wales. And I said, well, why did you do that? That doesn't make any sense. You know, there's, there's, surely there's experts across all these mines inside Queensland. And he said, yeah, but... If I ask them a question, I've told them what I don't know. <laughs> so, by, and this was really interesting. So, you know, asking a question was, if you like, politically risky inside this organization because it was a really high performing organization and everyone was, you know, being rewarded with, you know, uh, you know um, bonuses for their KPIs. But it also created this, this dark side, which is where, you know, people, really felt afraid to ask questions because it was revealing what, what they don't know. And some people are even going to competitors, you know, through through conversations down at the local pub <laughs> yeah, because they didn't want to reveal not knowing. And that really opened us up to the, 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 the cultural aspect of problem solving. Now, if, if you don't have a high trust organisation, you can't solve problems because you, you're not going to reveal to someone that you don't know something. Right, the problems get suppressed rather than put in the open to be yeah. solved. Hmm. That's 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 right, and um, now we, you know, to this day I still talk about that result, and it still resonates with um, executives when we mention it because they said, "Look, yep, um, you know, we, we we talk about being innovative, but really we don't have an innovative culture. We don't have a culture of trust uh, and, and mutual support. You know, this is this is the bedrock of innovation." Right. Absolutely. Interesting. So what were the, uh, do you have recommendations that came out of that? Yeah, I, I think we, 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 one of the things that we really got people talking about inside, inside that organization was, you know, how do we change the KPIs? How do we reward the people for the right behaviors and making it less directly competitive? So, you know, two groups, um, two, you know, and, and essentially they became rival groups on, on, on two mine sites. For example, two two drag line operating groups. Um, if one was better than the other, they'd be re, they'd be benchmarked off each other, and they'd be rewarded. Oh, I see. So, like, half of it's wanting the other guys to fail. Yeah, you know? yeah. Half so, of it's wanting to do well yourself, but the other half is if you're being benchmarked against someone else. Well, let's just push yeah. the benchmark down if we can. So, how do you reward people for you know improving the performance across the whole group? Right. Or how do you reward people for solving someone else's problem right. as a KPI? You know, so getting the KPIs right. Uh, you, you, KPIs are a dark art because sometimes you get really perverse outcomes, as yeah. As, yeah. As, 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 as everyone everyone knows. So that was an introduction to the resources sector. Um, and the next really big set of projects that we worked on, you know, from um, 2010 onwards, um, you know, Australia became, you know, the biggest 
site for LNG projects in the world. It was about 200 billion US dollars worth of, of LNG investments. Um, you know, and in, a, in um, Queensland, it was uh, coal, coal seam gas, unconventional gas to LNG, which hadn't been done anywhere in the world at that point. And, you know, it's almost like a, a, a you know, $60 billion of innovation projects lands on your doorstep in Brisbane. So <laughs> you can't really say no, you know, you just right. have to go and investigate these things. So we started looking at um, uh, innovation in mega projects, innovation through supply chains, um, mega project failures, uh, a whole a whole, whole range of things. And you know, a lot of really smart people got graduated out of that too, some of whom are working for the CSIRO, CSIRO and, uh, and and other places. So that, that really catalyzed a new uh, looking at research and looking at the relationship between the big resources companies and their supply chains, which uh, continues to be a, a research interest of mine um, to this day. Hmm. What, uh, any highlights or areas of focus around that relationship that, that you studied through the LNG projects? Yeah, there's a, num a number of things. Um, I mean, and this is one of the big findings, but it's completely consistent with everything we know about mega projects throughout the world. And, and indeed, um, you know, in, in, in mining too, you know, and when I say mega project, we tend to talk about something over a billion dollars uh, that involves a, uh, you know, particularly involves a supply chain, like a, like an EPC and a, you know, delivery partners and all, all, all of those mm -hmm. things as well. So a lot of mines get classified as, as, um, as mega projects. But um, one thing we found is that how you allocate risk is a major uh, factor in mega project performance and the successful introduction of innovations in mega projects. So if you like, you know, if you if the traditional way that um, a project owner allocates risk is with a fixed price contract. So you, you, you put the work out there, uh, you say, uh, this is the scope of work uh, and uh, a company bids on that and then the, then the contract is put in place. If the, if the company, if the, if the contractor fails to deliver, then there are, you know, so there can be um, you know, uh, uh, remediation um, of, you know, of, you know, failed parts of the contract, liquidated damages, that sort of, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. That's fine with simple projects. Right? So when you've got a simple project, you know, that's pretty short term duration, it's been done before, you can define the whole scope, you know, all the risks. Um, the contractor knows what the price will be. You've got a lot of confidence around that. But when you get to something that's really complicated, that runs over several years, where you don't know the future, um, that, that, that sort of fixed price contract where the risk is um, sort of, if you like, loaded onto the, the, the supply chain is, is a recipe for disaster. Right. And the, one of the reasons is um, that, um, you know, Invariably, in mega project, large complex projects, um, you know, problems happen. But if you have a, a fixed price contract set up, what usually happens is there's a there's a there's an information game between the the owner and the supply chain, um, and then you get sort of a, a model of um, you know uh, variations, you know, playing playing the variation game, on, and Invariably, it, it, it ends up in opportunities being missed, but you know also the, the project being delivered largely through lawyers um, <laughs> and all the all the information asymmetries that, that come out through through that. Right. Um, and, and but but the the real the real the real problem is that you know if you're a, um, a large company that's you know even a pretty large company, say for example the size of um, we use the example of ConocoPhillips that had one of these uh, one of these twenty billion twenty it was a twenty four billion dollar gas project. Um, you know, twenty four billion dollars is even pretty big for ConocoPhillips. So, if you've got a problem with the with the delivery of the project, what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to um, hold the project up and go to court and try try and try and get liquidated damages you know for for several billion which is probably even more than the more than the the company that you're suing is worth right you know you, you they, they, it's they're too big to fail right so you you, you know that 
you, you can't you can't get remediation of the of the project problems through through the court. So what 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 happened in many of these projects is they started with a traditional contracting model, and over time it became more alliancing, more collaborative, where the risks and benefits would be shared. Right. And the projects that were successful. Um, morphed into a risk-sharing, risk-bearing relationship. And um, the ones that didn't were performed very, very poorly. And this is consistent all around the world. So right. one of the conclusions, um, particularly for the mining industry, is, you know, a, a lot of the time when we when we put in, this is your, your PhD, right, Andrew, we put in place big bets on projects. We've got to set those up contractually in the right way. Uh, we've got to be risk-sharing, risk-bearing because... Um, the traditional model of um, you know, fixed price contracts and loading the supply chain with uh, risk um, it drives the wrong behaviours, which results in a, in a failed project a lot right. of the time. Right. Well, it's a hugely important topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and I, I neglected to mention that um, I, I, another hat I wear is um, senior editor of the Project Management Journal, which is the uh, the uh, academic journal of the Project Management Institute, right. and um, you know a lot a lot of our research and the research of my my um, esteemed colleagues who, who are uh, very very well known people, much much better known than I am. Um, they look at the same problems, and my colleague Andy Davies, who's uh, in the UK, he's seen the same problems in civil infrastructure. Um, Right. You know, if we, the whole point is you've got to be an intelligent owner of a project. You've got to have enough knowledge to understand what's being done, and you've got to be able to see through the supply chain um, in a way that enables you to understand what's going on. It's not sufficient to say, "Here's the capital, here's what we want, um, EP, EPC, go do your work." Um, yeah, call us when it's done. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, our our job here is done. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 that's a rest, that that is not satisfactory. And I do remember uh, at the peak of the mining boom in about 2012, uh, and I can't say who this was because this, this is a this is a, um, uh, a confidential discussion. But being called into a um, an executive office of a, a large mining company, and and they they said, look, um, we know you're you've got some interesting views on projects. And I said, well, I I think they're interesting. <laughs> and they said, "Well, here's our, here's our, um, if you like, uh, the 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 the, um, the blood list of, of of our current projects, and the the losses that we're mounting up were in, were in the billions." Um, wow. you know. And so we started talking about mega project failures and and the need to be an intelligent owner. And I got uh, Andy Davies on the line to talk about best practice in civil infrastructure with. Um, you know, risk share, risk bear relationships, um, supply chain visibility. You know, really having a lot of project management competency in in the in the owner organisation. And Andy just said, "Look, you know, you really have to be an intelligent owner." And I remember one of these mining execs turning to the other and say, "Saying, are we intelligent owners?" <laughs> and the other fellow turned around and said, "No, we're dumb." <laughs> so, so you know, that's this. You know, the the, the the, the, the industry at that time, one of the reasons why there was so much poorly allocated capital is that they just didn't have the 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 the, um, the capabilities to manage mega projects in the way that's that's world's best practice. Right, right. Yeah, I imagine you know you can think of the even at the small scale the you know a personal consumer. You know, if you have no absolutely no knowledge of. Um, you know, the work you're asking to take place mm. and you're extremely demanding, <laughs> you know, there, there's a pretty good chance you can get taken for a ride. Um, and that, you know, that I, I feel like the, what you're identifying is the exact same problems track all the way up into these billion dollar projects. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and yeah, you know, when we see um, an organization struggle to deliver a, a major project, you know, and, with the consequence of write downs, um, sometimes it's a new level of scale. Now, there's there's something about the novelty there which takes them outside their level, their expertise, mm. and you know often they've they've covered that up with a an EPC, um, but that doesn't solve the problem either because you still 
don't understand what's going on through your supply chain. You're sort of well, flying, I think one of the things one mine. of the things I've observed anecdotally, um, you know, is mining organizations anyway is trying to shed as much, let's just call it um, non-routine competency as they can during the lean times, whether that's yeah, yeah. research centers, internal yep. project management offices, um, you know, anything that's not about site operation, you know, routine mm. site operation. And then it sounds like, you know, what you're describing is that comes home to roost when it's time to build and develop and those competencies aren't in-house mm. and the activities that need to happen aren't well enough understood and you're um, relying on somebody else to take all that on who now has um, all of the information. And, you know, if you're left without, you know, even the internal competency to be able to ask the right questions to to properly manage the risk, you're going to be in a really bad spot. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, I, I, I think that we, we, we make the same mistakes over and over again. So I think, um, you know, 2014, 15, 16, there's some lean times. Everyone was saying, look, we don't know what the trigger is, but we're going to see another rise in the cycle. Um, which, 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 which we're seeing now, you know, and organization, you know, mining companies were being warned that you need to invest now, you need to have innovation management capabilities, you need to have a, a, a sophisticated technology supply chain, you need to have that internal project management capability, you need to be an intelligent owner. But, um, you know, the, 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 these these things tend to fall on deaf ears. You know, I, I, I've actually been reading um, Jared Diamond's book, uh, uh, you know, on um, uh, on country resilience, and he mm. he talks about um, you know Finland as a resilient country. Uh, they went to war with the Russians in in the 1930s, and they soundly defeated them right. because Stalin had. Um, sort of, um, if you like, uh, liquidated his officer class. You know, a you, you, you can't just build up management capability at the drop of a hat. You know, once you lose it, rebuilding it takes a long time. Right. Right. Okay. Um, maybe shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned a, uh, a relationship with EY. Uh, do you want to describe that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very happy to do that. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's conversations. And, um, you know, when I moved to the University of Queensland in 2003, four, um, I met a, Hey, an, another kindred spirit, a, a, a guy who'd grown up in Mauritius, okay. um, and had become a, a, a management consultant, um, and had moved to Brisbane after working for IBM. Uh, Gerald Marion is Marion is his name. He's now an executive for a uh, health insurance company in Australia. Very, very nice guy. Very, very smart. We're still very good friends. Anyway, so so um, Gerald was interested in in the in the research we were doing, and over time um, he would introduce us to people within within uh, Ernst and Young. And I met with uh, I remember it was uh, just just before Christmas I think it was uh, Paul Mitchell the global mining and metals leader was in Brisbane um, he came out to the campus and we had a chat over a cup of coffee and um, we had a great conversation and we started out with one one project looking at um, productivity in the mining sector and then it it just grew from there um, you know like all of these all of these relationships these partnerships that are enduring and productive are based on um, collaboration over time and building trust and understanding. So, right. you know, that was, oh, gee, 2012, 2013. Um, and we've done a number of things together over the years, you know, industry reports, webinars, um, a, whole, a whole range of collaborative activities. So when I came to the University of British Columbia, um, that, that, that partnership came here too. And uh, uh, I remember discussing the idea with with EY and um, we had this idea that um, of creating an EY uh, distinguished scholar in in global mining futures and 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 they've generated uh, very generously contributed to that position um, as a I guess a um, you know putting a, a, a stake in the ground in really seriously thinking through the future of the industry so that's that's a very um, very nice, 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 nice partnership. I mean, the 
the people at EY are, are, are you know, not only great industry collaborators, but um, you know, we, we always enjoy catching up for a drink or going out to a restaurant when we can get get the time. Right. So is that um, shaping some of your research? I'd imagine it's shaping some of your research direction at UBC now. Do you want to talk a little bit about the your current areas of focus at your mm-hmm. position at UBC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I came I came to UBC with that position, uh, sort of. Uh, sort of a little bit like a blank check. It's sort of a, a sort of a dream position, you know. Sort of global mining futures is very broad. You know, you can sort of uh, construe that any way that you want. But um, I, it's one of these positions where I think at the end of the, the of the five years, it's really about what have we been able to change in the industry. So really, what we're looking for is change in how the industry thinks about innovation. Uh, change in how the industry thinks about sustainability, but also I think very importantly um, how people within the university think about the industry and particularly graduates. Um, you know, can we actually attract uh, smart, talented people into the industry at a time when it's incredibly challenged on all fronts, but also growing? Um, we've really got to convey to to graduates that the this is a very interesting industry to work with and as you know yourself Andrew you can pretty much follow any career that you you want you can create yeah. any career that you like it's a it's an incredibly Absolutely. diverse industry so so what we what, what Brad, the Bradshaw Institute um, which was um, it's it's called it's called the Bradshaw Research Initiative in in mining and minerals and the Bradshaw name is uh, is Dr. Peter Bradshaw, who will be well known to many people in Canada and uh, in Vancouver in particular. Um, Peter's had a, a long career in the industry, um, and you know if, if you're interested in Peter's career, um, you can Google uh, Peter Bradshaw Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, and, and it really maps it out quite nicely. But um, I think what Peter's probably best known for is the discovery of, of the Porgera mine. Mm. In uh, in New Guinea, uh, he's okay. he really led that exploration work that um, really discovered the world's biggest biggest gold mine. But Peter's Peter's also an entrepreneur, um, passion. You know, he's he's obviously retired now, but still very passionate about the future of the industry and the role of the industry in in um, supplying the materials that we need for a sustainable uh, world in the twenty first century. So. What 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 I saw when I came to UBC was um, a very large university uh, with world class expertise uh, in a number of different areas relating to mining, but like a lot of universities around the world, um, quite siloed um, in that you know the traditional culture of a university, and this isn't UBC, this is everywhere around the world. The the the, the universities reward individual brilliance. Right. Mm. That's that that that's that's how you get promoted, um, but that's not terribly useful for industry because they don't want to be dealing with a, a thousand individually brilliant people, <laughs> right. which 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 sounds like uh, some definition of hell or at least hurting cats anyway. <laughs> so so you know while we do have this wonderful research and, and knowledge um, and, and you know sort of underlying capacity to collaborate and co-create solutions with the industry culturally we're not set up for it so what the Bradshaw Institute is doing is creating teams of um, uh, of, of if you like the, the best the best researchers across UBC in particular areas and those particular areas that we're choosing are ones that are uh, uh, you know must win uh, must must win battlegrounds if you like for the sustainability of the industry so, as an example, uh, the first one we launched uh, just last the other week was um, uh, it's, it's called the Mining Microbiome, but it's really about um, uh, biotechnology and mining. And the way we've set that up is it's you know how does biotechnology change mining across the whole mining life cycle to be um, you know more productive, um, cleaner, uh, you know better relationships with environment and society. So in exploration, um, in mineral processing, and also right through to mine remediation, biotechnology can play a role in all of those areas. And we've got some of the world's leaders in genomics, um, hydrometallurgy, um, for those who, who know the uh, 
the story about Jetty, uh, the, the, the copper copper leaching technology, which looks like it could be a complete game changer for for um, for copper um, copper processing, copper ore processing, and that that technology came out of UBC. So it's not that we haven't been doing mining uh, research; we've just been doing it in a very scattered way. So uh, I remember talking to someone; it's a bit like the problem of dark matter. Um, yeah, we know that uh, you know the universe is quite heavy, but we can't see it. And the reason why we can't see the heavy stuff in the universe is that it's very scattered. So one of the things that Brim is doing is bringing together um, you know the scattered parts and bringing them into a very visible, critical mass of researchers on certain topics. So that's that's biotechnology, but we're also looking at um, renewable mine energy systems, sustainable mine energy systems, um, because of the uh, Ballard. Uh, Ballard is um, one of the, I guess, oldest and best known hydrogen power companies in the world, but it was, yeah. it's, it's based in Vancouver. So yeah. because of that relationship, um, over many years, uh, UBC is a world leader in, in hydrogen power and fuel cell te technology. And guess what? What, what are the miners interested in? <laughs> They're very interested in hydrogen power. Mm. So how do we, so we're building a bridge between that, that, you know, decades of world-class expertise and the industry. Another one we're looking at um, is, is water. Um, and I think, um, you know, we, we un we're starting to get the idea that mining has a pretty big carbon footprint that we need to address. But mining also has a very big water footprint. Right. And in a water-constrained world in the future, um, you know, where, where miners are competing with agriculture and, and towns for water, we really need to think about how we how we how we manage water. We need to look at innovation in water water um, efficiency. Um, one very interesting piece of work that um, uh, a PhD student of mine, uh, Benjamin Cox, is working on at the moment is, you know, not what's the cost of water, but what's the value of water, and that's that's a very different thing. So, for example, if you look at the at, at Chile, um, the Atacama Desert, the value of water to an avocado farmer is about 50 cents a megalitre, okay. right? So that's, the, what, what, that's what the avocado farmer can do with that water to translate it into um, you know, a value-added product. Right. The value of water to, the, to a big copper mine is about $7. Oh, wow. So who's going to win in a fight, you know, in, in a water contest? You know, yeah, who's going who's gonna to pay more for the water and who's right. going to win? Right. So, so these are the these are the contests, right? And we've really got to think about, you know, as as an industry, how do we respond? How do we deal with that? Governments have to think about that because, you know, water. Um, we take water for granted, but in the future, and, and particularly in developing economies, um, water is is life, and um, you know the industry. That if it doesn't think about how it uses water, will end up in a hell of a lot of conflict with with local communities. Right, right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, those are you know critical topics to the industry going forward. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, we don't want to be pretend that we're experts at everything, but there are some things where the University of British Columbia really is good at. Um, you know, and and. Uh, you know that that uh, biotech, uh, energy, um, water, and also, and this is across Canada more generally. Uh, uh, Canada is actually a hot spot for artificial intelligence and data analytics, mm. um, and you know Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver are very good at that. But again, um, UBC has a lot of expertise in this area, and you know the ability to pull that together into a into a theme and connect it with industry is something. I'd also really like to like to do so. Uh, I'm working pretty hard on that at the moment, having a lot of very interesting conversations with um, with research leaders um, across across campus in, in different departments. Well, maybe um, you know I, we uh, didn't mention um, during the conversation part of this podcast, but you're the director of Brim. Can you talk a little bit about your responsibilities in that position? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. Um, it's one of those things where you, you arrive in a job and you don't expect to to be in a position, uh, you know, within a year. But um, I, I guess, as someone um, who's really racked up the miles over the years, you know, going across across the world talking to the industry, 
I've got a very um, global view of, of, of the industry and I, I think that I, I, I understand the needs and challenges of the industry quite quite well. So um, this the position of Director of BRIM came up and I, I thought this is a tremendously exciting opportunity. You know, what better thing could we do than marshal the resources of, of UBC, the expertise to really address challenges in the mining sector. And what I keep telling people is that, um, you know, if we're going to reach a point at the end of the 21st century where we have a sustainable society, uh, a sustainable economy, we've reached that zero net carbon target. If that happens, it will be because we have transformed the mining sector. Because the amount of materials that we need to adjust all of that energy infrastructure, indeed infrastructure full stop, to a zero net carbon sustainable economy, we need massive amounts of materials. You know, the, the, the little factoid I like to give to people is um, we'll need as much copper in the next 20 years as we produce in the whole of human history. Right. right. So, you know, I think, um, you know, uh, not, not, not you know, one one of the real privileges of this position is, you know, the 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 idea of getting up in the morning with a purpose. Um, you know, what's what's what what am I here to do? And it's really about doing the heavy lifting on an industry that is again a, a must-win battleground for uh, sustainability. You know, if we can't transform the mining sector and reduce its ecological footprint. Then all the wind turbines, all the solar panel, all the Teslas—it's for nothing, because right. we haven't changed the way that we produce the materials that go into these things. Right. Yeah, it's a critical way to look at it—the net, um, you know, the net impact when we're doing all these, when we're creating all these cleaner technologies and less impactful technologies. If we're doing it with a huge amount of impact, <laughs> as you say, it's it's all for naught. Yeah, and and you can see the um, you know the, the 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 users of these materials really starting to get anxious as they wake up to the idea that they're you know to 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 produce all these electric vehicles we're going to need all this nickel um, and where does the nickel come from? So you have um, Elon Musk putting out a call for you know could someone please please produce uh, nickel with a zero net carbon you know uh, footprint uh, so he can get it into our Teslas and. Yeah. They're starting to wake up to the idea that that these materials um, don't come out of thin air. Yeah, they ultimately they ultimately all come from somewhere. <laughs> they come from somewhere. Yeah, you know, same with cobalt. You know, I I, I was having a discussion with somebody, um, you know, about the importance of the mining industry, and and you know, uh, they were a Tesla driver, and I said, look, okay, you drive a Tesla. He said, they said, yeah. Um, and I'm not picking on Teslas, by the way. No, you could yeah, be any, yeah. any EV. I'm not, not on, a, on a holy war against um, just, Tesla. Just a popular example. <laughs> but a popular example that everyone knows, for example. But I was saying, look, you know, do you know what's in your battery? And they said, oh, oh lithium, I think. Yeah, lithium, but, but also cobalt. Do you know where that cobalt comes from? No idea. Well, it probably comes out of the Democratic Republic of yeah. Congo, <laughs> yep. and it's probably produced by people who aren't working in the best of conditions. They may even be children, and they, 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 that had never occurred to them. Um, right. So this is one of the big challenges. You know, how do we get visibility through the supply chain, um, and and you know, how do we change the industry so that if we do come up with a technological solution, which is environmentally friendly, how do we make sure that the whole supply chain is environmentally friendly? Uh, right. this, this, this is going to be really important. Well, uh, John, it certainly sounds like you have your work cut out for you. That's, <laughs> that's a lot of stuff. Um, what's the, you said, you said there's about a five-year timeline. Is that a, is that your term as director or is that more open-ended? Yeah, so, so um, um, that my position, the Distinguished Scholar uh, in Global Mining Futures, the White Distinguished Scholar, mm -hmm. uh, that's, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm one year in, <laughs> there's yeah. five years to go. It, five years just goes so quickly, you know. Um, yeah. Um, but that, that, you know, there's, that, that, that's five years. Um, you know, I, 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 do, I do hope that UBC sees enough value in me to, to keep <laughs> me around. Um, but the, um, you know, the, the, the position is... Um, director of BRIM 
uh, you know, I report to a board and they'll be watching me very closely to see if I can deliver on these things. And uh, That's a lot of stuff to deliver on. That's, I, well, I feel, I'm, I'm not sure you could have picked more uh, more challenging areas in a more challenging industry to go after. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, again, again, it's, it's a little bit like, um, it's, it's probably not much more challenging than getting out of Tasmania <laughs> out of Hobart, you know, and, and being told by, you know, being told by a teacher that, um, you know, you, you're probably better off, uh, picking up hammers and nails. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, it's, it's interesting sometimes what, what drives us, you know, it may be even a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I've got something to prove, but sure. if it, if it, if it drives me harder, that's not a bad thing. Absolutely. Um, well, I, uh, I appreciate you sharing all this. I suspect that we'll be, um, you know, checking back in again periodically since these are, uh, topics that, are absolutely relevant to the industry. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, in the industry do have a, a really active interest in, I think often, you know, you talk to people and and they can, you know, project their feelings of the industry onto people in the industry and, you know, not understand that the industry is made up of people that care, you know, just about the environment, just about the, just as much about these social issues as, um, other people do, you know, if not more so, you know, like, mm. like yourself, there are lots of people that go into the industry because they feel like they can make an impact in these really important areas. Um, yeah. So I think it, it's absolutely something we'll, we'll be checking back on regularly. Uh, so I want to say, John, thanks very much for your time today and uh, really appreciated the conversation. And I found it absolutely fascinating. Oh, thanks, Andrew, and uh, re- really appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea that SEPRO is doing this. You know, we, we, we don't have enough of these sort of open conversations where we sort of um, open up our souls a bit sometimes and really think <laughs> about our, our purpose and what motivates us. So uh, thanks, thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely welcome. I look forward to the next conversation. Thank you. <laughs>